Well, 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 welcome to Friday and welcome to Week in Review. Uh, we're going to go over the week's news for the next hour and figure it out together. All you have to do is stay tuned. Mazda drivers, you don't have a choice. This show is mandatory. Uh, we'll, we'll discuss. You, uh, you're you're going to mandatorily spend an hour, lucky you, with the stranger staff writer, Jazz Kaimig. Hiya, Jazz. What's up? Good to see you again. Seattle Times transportation <clears throat> reporter, David Croman. Hey, David. Hi there. Nice to have you along. And freelance journalist, Joanne Silberner. Joanne, thanks for coming on the show. It's great to see you. And great to be here. And I literally can see you, as I always say. We're live streaming the show. Uh, you can uh, guess where David is right now. Um, <laughs> sort of, uh, it's sort of abstract, impressionistic. Um, you can see our guests because we are on YouTube or Facebook. You just search KUOW Public Radio, and <clears throat> and you can see it happen. And maybe maybe someday we'll be in even be in person. We've got COVID case numbers falling. Uh, this week, Governor Inslee cited those falling COVID case rates and falling hospitalizations as reasons that he is ending the outdoor big event mask mandate. You will no longer have to mask up at a theoretical Seahawks, Mariners, Rain, Sounders game uh, as, as, um, as of a week from now. Does that make sense? In a week, you can stop masking up at those big crowded 500-person outdoor events. But Governor Inslee... Some blue states are dropping their indoor mask requirements. When are we going to do that? We are obviously having conversations and an intensive review of what day it will be and when we can do this. It is no longer a matter of if, it is a question of when. Joanne Silberner, health policy is your beat. Why is Governor Inslee lagging behind such Democratic governors as Jersey, New York, Oregon, Connecticut, Delaware, California, when it comes to dropping the uh, indoor mask mandate? Because there's no clear metric. There's no clear measurement. When should you do it? You should do it when you feel like, uh, and I might lose some people here. I might lose some support. I mean, public health right now, in my 40 years of covering it, I've never seen it so distrusted. And the recommendations that they're making have to be made in a practical way that people will follow. And if, if you're going to lose everybody or you're going to lose people who are going to make enough noise, then you, you've got to take that into account. There's no there's no right or wrong answer. And, you know, when you look back at the Spanish flu with the 1918-1919 pandemic, they dropped they dropped a lot of what are, these are called non-pharmaceutical interventions, you know, masking, distancing, uh, school closures. They dropped and added and dropped and added over time, just like we're doing now. And the, the, it could come back. We could end up needing masks again. Who determines? You know, it's ironic that we're looking to politicians for these answers. It used to be we would look to the CDC or to uh, the Department of Health and Human Services. Uh, it's the politicians who are making the decisions, and they are basically making the decisions, I think, based on what their public will tolerate. Yeah, I agree. And I think that you know, uh, Washington has certainly had one of the more strict, um, you know, kind of COVID policies. So I'm kind of not surprised to see Inslee kind of taking his time. And I think, you know, from my perspective, I'm totally okay, you know, if, <laughs> you know, this comes two weeks after, you know, Oregon and California and other places, I'm not in a rush to, uh, you know, whip off that mask quite yet. You know, I think the entire globe is, is getting really tired of this pandemic. And I don't think any 
anyone likes wearing masks, but I think that, you know, in lieu of um, other interventions, I feel like it's kind of one of, and vaccines, it's one of the best, you know, methods that we have to not continue to spread COVID. Um, so I'm definitely, I'm down with him taking his time. <laughs> well, that's- actually, back, back in, oh, David, let me just put this in for thought, which is back in the beginning of the pandemic, I don't know whether you remember this, but they had a measurement of how many people tested positive versus how many people came in for testing. And there was a cutoff. I think New York State had a 5% cutoff. When, when, when 5% of the people coming in for testing, it, it was some ridiculous number because who was coming in for testing was who qualified for testing. You had right. to qualify to be tested. There weren't enough tests to go around. It was, there's just no number mm-hmm. to, to give the politicians much guidance. And I think, you know, Joanne had mentioned uh, following politicians over CDC or um, health and human services. But what we, you know, what we're hearing from Governor Inslee is that he is, he is following the CDC because the CDC has not, yeah. mm-hmm. hasn't come out yet and said, it's okay to drop these mask mandates. So, you know, you could make the argument that it's the other governors that are, are being a little more political about this while Governor Inslee is trying to go, uh, you know, take the CDC's example. That said, he, you know, he said in his, his news conference that, he would probably announce a date for dropping the mask mandate um, next week. And, you know, as long as cases continue to fall, which they seem to be doing, um, I, I wouldn't expect him to, to, you know, not do that. It, it is interesting, though. I mean, I think um, to a certain extent, we've gotten used to the Omicron numbers um, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, King, King County King County yesterday then <clears throat> reported, I think it was 2,500 cases. And before Omicron, uh, the record was like a thousand in a day, you know, in Delta's peak, it was, you know, we were talking when it hit a thousand a day, that was newsworthy. And so 2,500 yesterday is um, certainly a lot lower than the 5,000 we had a, a couple weeks ago, but that was wild, still yeah. a, a very significant number. Um, and, you know, 2,500 people have died uh, are dying every day across the country. So it's um, I think to Joanne's point, this is really about, um, it's less about the presence of the virus because there's, you know, factually the, the virus is here very much so still, but it is a question of, is it, are these mandates, you know, serving a util- the utility that they were supposed to, are people following them? Um, and uh, will people continue to follow them? And I think that's kind of a lot of what's driving this conversation right now. Can one Governor thing Inns- we've gotten, Go oh, ahead, sorry, one thing we've gotten here that I don't think has happened in most of the other states is people like Inslee and Jeff Duchin have been, very careful. If you listen to what they say each time, they, they're very careful to say based on what we know now. Right. And I'm not hearing that from the federal authorities. I'm not hearing that from a lot of other politicians. Uh, and here, I, th- I think, you know, and, and Inslee's remark, you know, we're taking in the information and the information is changing and it could go the other way. We could end mm-hmm. up having masking again. Yeah. And, and Joanne, what you had said about, you know, the, with the Spanish flu about how there was, you know, waves of them kind of taking measures and then rolling back and taking measures. There's something that is a little bit comforting and knowing that, um, you know, there's at least some precedence for this type of, you know, uh, no cloth masks now in 95s now no masks. Right. Cause it can, I know that it's a science and that we're learning more as it goes along, but you know, it can be really exhausting to try to keep up on, on all the rules. The head of Washington state's public schools publicly asked the governor to drop the statewide school mask requirement, to just leave it up to local school districts. I tend to assume those kinds of statements are orchestrated. 
um, you know, they're 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 both Democrats and that they're but why are why are they doing it this way? Are they feuding in public or is this <laughs> is this all um, a, a ballet? This is how it's supposed to happen that someone suggests and calls for and someone says, hmm, well, as opposed to just being here's when it when when cases reach this. When testing rates reach this, when availability of kits reach this, when hospitalizations reach this, then 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 this is what's going to happen next. Well, Chris Reichdahl, I mean, Chris Reichdahl is independently elected uh, the, the head of schools of Washington state. So um, he doesn't have I mean, he's not obligated to coordinate his message with Governor Inslee because um, he's accountable to the voters. He's not directly accountable to Governor Inslee. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> you know, I, I, I'm thinking about the significance of the, the mask mandate um, and, it, and it possibly being dropped. You know, I, you think about bars, and if you've been in a bar recently, like you've got to put on your mask when you walk in the front door and maybe when you walk to your table. But then other than that, nobody's, everyone's eating and drinking and no one's really wearing a mask all that much. Um, but I think the one place where the mask mandate um, really does make a difference and its repeal would make a difference is is schools because um that's where i I think i think as as has been the case through a lot of this pandemic i think that's where a lot of the biggest tension is because you know it's it's tough to to keep kids in masks all day um the requirements around uh when kids can be in school versus not are confusing and so i think really that is kind of when, when we're talking about the future of the mask mandate in some ways in some ways we're really talking about the future of the mask mandate in schools. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting that he came out, um, you know, in favor of, of repealing the mask mandate in schools and kind of talking about how it comes, you know, in between students learning. But, you know, I think earlier in January, uh, hundreds of students were outside the Seattle Public Schools uh, district, you know, headquarters, um, kind of calling for more PPE and calling for kind of these like greater protections. Um, so it's definitely a very interesting tension, but I agree with Croman, um, you know, a lot, some of the mask mandates and like music venues and bars and restaurants, it's a bit of hygiene theater, right? Like I'm breathing in all of the aerosols of the table next to me, you know, putting it on when I'm going to the bathroom is not going to do much. <laughs> do you think, what do you think schools in the, the Seattle area where we have very high vaccination rates, but also, I think, relatively high support for masking. Is it going to be, if it's school by school, do we know what Seattle would do? Do we know what teachers unions are saying? Just, the teachers unions, I mean, they, they have tended to be, you know, protective of their, pretty protective of their members through this whole thing. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, um, not an education reporter, so have not been following this <laughs> super closely. But, you know, I get the sense that they are, um, you know, make make a big deal out of there being proper protection for their members, which, you know, is what you'd expect from a union. Um, but no, I, I don't know. I don't know what it would look like on a sort of district by district basis. Mask optional sounds awkward at school. <laughs> right. And probably not that effective either. Yeah. I, but again, I, the, you know, the information has been changing a little bit over time. I think we've known since fairly early on that kids are not super spreaders, or at least they weren't with Delta. I don't know that there's data now on Omicron. And vaccines are coming in now. Uh, you know, the, the FDA is now considering, actively considering vaccinations for infants or for, mm-hmm. I guess, two-year-olds. I don't remember the numbers, but, you know, so, so that, you know, and a lot of kids have brothers and sisters at home. And, you know, if their brothers and sisters are vaccinated and they're going to school, they're less of a risk to others than if, if they're 
little brothers and sisters aren't. So new information's coming in over time. And that that's, I mean, I, I think, Bill, your general line of questioning is really important. It's like, how do you make these decisions and who makes them? And there were protocols that there were all sorts of emergency preparedness plans in place, national ones, state states all had emergency preparedness plans, and it all went out the door. <laughs> and people have thought about these things and they're not thinking, you know, in, in when when everything hit the hit the flames, we're we're not going back to any kind of standards. It, it strikes me as so ad hoc. Mm-hmm. Uh, one last, by the way, I, I just saw this morning, this is uh, Friday as we're doing the show live, the FDA has has uh, changed its mind. Apparently, it's going to wait for more data on the Pfizer vaccine before deciding whether to authorize it for kids under five years old. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, the, the, the results from Pfizer's clinical trial have been mixed, and so they're... They're still discussing uh, about that. But what, one last thing before we leave COVID and, and go on to other things this week is that the uh, Joanne, you pointed out the New York Times. I saw this, too. The New York Times ran an essay by a priest who was saying it's understandably difficult to feel compassion for an anti-vaxxer who dies of COVID, <laughs> but that it's good for us to, to make that difficult leap of compassion. And then the letters to the editor included one from Seattle w- that I'm sure to many Americans epitomize attitude. Uh, what, <laughs> What, what what was that, Joanne? Well, it was the the letter was a letter agreeing. Uh, the the letter was saying, "How can you feel compassion for these people? You know, I, they they're infecting me and other people. They, right. they infected my family. They deserve and no compassion. They deserve no compassion. And and uh, you know, some of the late night comics have talked about this as well and gotten good laughs out of it. The question is though is how do you operationalize that? I think we all it's hard. Even the most saintly among are going to be a little bit annoyed that somebody else has infected our family. Somebody mm-hmm. else has. And, and when you think, picture doctors and nurses, you know, and in the, they're going home to their families. They're possibly carrying some, you know, they're working God awful hours. And then they, you know, they get infected and get sick or they bring it home to their families and get them sick. You can understand where they might think, why should I be, you know, and I'm sure they ask themselves that and they come back to work. And why do they come back to work? You know, it's their, their training is, in compassion, their training is in treatment. You know, when a fat person comes in with a heart attack, they don't say, well, you're fat. You know, I'm, I'm not going to treat you. You asked for this with every, you know, w- by not taking care of your weight. They, they, you can't, if you make judgments on illnesses before you treat people, you know, a smoker comes in with lung cancer, you say, oh, sorry. You know, I'm, I mean, the difference there, it's not infectious. You know, lung cancer is not infectious. But, you know, any of the infectious diseases, uh, you know, the, uh, uh, sexually transmitted diseases. You can't just say, "Well, you asked for it." You know, you, you can't walk away. And and if 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 we follow through on that, how would we do it? You know, would we have some clerk in the front office saying, uh, "Let me check your vaccination records." You know, when someone comes in in, in distress, let me check your vaccine. Oh wait, no, you haven't been vaccinated. Go. How how could you say that to a person directly? Face. Do you want to go to a doctor or do you want to be in a hospital where a clerk is? hired to do that I mean, it, it you can't do it i mean i think we all no. have the feeling but i don't see how you can do it i don't know whether that letter writer uh, wanted people to be turned away for being you know anti-vaxxers but he was definitely getting at this don't tell me to feel compassion right. uh, he was he was very dismissive which is i understand i understand the yeah. feeling yeah, yeah. yeah. 
I think it's I think it's really easy to feel that way, but I think kind of getting mad at individuals for this problem that you know exists on such a societal and structural level is isn't going to be as satisfactory. And I find myself more mad at the system that kind of allowed it allowed this to happen in such like a flagrant way, you know, and you know not paying people to stay home enough or uh, you know opening or closing too quickly. I think those are the things that you know, kind of deserve the most kind of anger as opposed to, uh, you know, localizing it down to one person, right? Uh, I think that's when you kind of start to get into to trouble uh, with blame. Oh, schadenfreude. Uh, yeah. Okay, uh, you're listening to uh, Week in Review on KOW. We've been updating you on falling case rates um, with COVID and uh, the governor has dropped the outdoor big event mask mandate as of next week. And uh, it sounds like we, the, the panel expects, I expect some kind of announcement um, soon, maybe next week on the indoor mask mandate. We'll see. We're going to take a pause and get right back. Uh, keep listening to KUOW uh, as if you could do anything else, Mazda drivers, that and more when Week in Review rolls on. We're figuring out what went down this week with my journalist guests, freelance journalist Joanne Silberner, Seattle Times' David Croman, and The Strangers' Jazz Kaimig. Do you ever feel like you've got too many choices? What if you could just pick someone whose judgment you trust and you wouldn't have to stare at 60 kinds of coffee beans? This person would buy them for you. They would tell you which novel you're going to read, how your money will be invested. And you know what? It'll be fine. It'll be good enough. And you'll suddenly have triple the free time and mental space and calm. That's the dream. Mazda drivers are living the dream this week. Thanks to, and for a while more, thanks to some kind of glitch, KUOW's high-definition signal is causing local Mazda entertainment systems to be stuck on this radio station. Seattle Mazda motorist Scott Smith says it's weird. You can adjust the volume. You can't change the stations. Luckily, I, may, I am an NPR listener, and that's fine. So <laughs> I have NPR. Mazda dealerships say they're flooded with calls, Joanna. I assume that's people calling to thank them? <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I wasn't aware there were other radio stations. I don't know that this is a problem, but uh, I'm, in a bu- I'm in a KOW bubble. Did, did you all hear about this story as well? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 I, I, have, to con- oh, I, ahead, I have to confess, I can't work my car's navigation system. <laughs> okay. I, you know, so the idea, that it, I wouldn't know. You know, it, it would either be on KUOW or KNKX, depending on what I'd last listened to. And mm-hmm. that's where it is. I'm, I'm stuck. And I, I, I don't own a Mazda anymore. I now have an EV. And they, they're just starting to market their EVs this year. Uh, I, I have a, uh, a Hyundai. But I had Mazdas for literally 25 years. I had a couple of cars in their early years of the model. They're wonderful cars. And I, I just can't imagine how current Mazda drivers must feel about being dictated to like that. Yeah. <laughs> it's big public radio, you know, the, the long arm of big public radio yeah. coming out. Sure. Um, but, you know, it's kind of it is kind of the definition of like a first world problem, I think. But, yes. you know, hearing hearing some of the, you know, I, I think the screen glitches, uh, people aren't able to use their backup cameras. So, I mean, it's definitely I, I feel like it would be pretty irritating, you know, even as a devoted KOW listener to not be able to have <laughs> access to, to all of that, you know, stuff that you paid for in your car. Yeah. And the the replacement, it's like 
$1,500, right? Mm. It's it's a nice big chunk of change. I think Mazda's saying, saying that they'll fix it for you, but it's going to take a long time. It's going to take, yeah. you know, there's supply chain issues many, many weeks. And David, it's not just the, uh, <laughs> as, uh, as Jazz was suggesting, it's the rear camera, but it's the GPS. It's the Bluetooth phone connection. Um, KOW is accidentally really lousing up these uh, the system from Mazda drivers yeah. between 2014 and 2017. That's the time period. Yeah, I mean, we we talk in the world of journalism about making an impact, and you guys are really <laughs> doing that. Really have. <laughs> All right. Well, um, well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Yeah. Do you know how this happens? Well, it, it, I'm not sure. Mazda has Mazda basically blamed KOW. They <laughs> they, they said that that because you know HD high definition radio signals carry other information, like what song is playing right now. You know, you know that. So Mazda said that KUOW transmitted image files with no extension, which is an explosive accusation, Mazda. You better be ready to back that up. But I don't know whether that's true or not. There's been many theories. But if, yeah. if, KU, if KUW can take down a Mazda with a Word document, I feel like Mazda has bigger problems. <laughs> Thank you. That's true. Thank you. Yeah, and there was like a big upgrade for, to 5G recently, right? And that's kind of another theory that's going around is that, you know, the Mazda's computers could only really operate on 3G, at least from that from that oh, era. Our operations yeah. manager, by the way, debunked that. Um, oh, I really? Tend to trust, okay. I tend to trust Dane. Uh, you yeah. know, I, I know him and he knows what he's talking about. You know, I, I'm, I'm no expert. He says it's it's not a 5G thing. But, we'll... but my, my, you know, my big fear is, you know, when they're coming up with these driverless cars that are going to really be dependent mm. on communications, you know, are they going to all make us drive to KUOW? We're going to go to your doorstep. <laughs> you know, Let's I hope. think the urbanists win this round, you know, yeah, go on a walk. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, KUOW is trying to come up with some commemorative bumper stickers to send to those poor Mazda drivers. So we are asking for slogan ideas uh, okay. We've heard so far. We've heard I wouldn't change the station even if I could. I can't stop listening, and I've tried. Uh, I wish my car was stuck on KOW. That's for non-Mazda uh, drivers. Uh, support KOW. You have no choice. So feel free to get on. You know, get on Twitter, get on Facebook, and and give your ideas. And I just want to say to those Mazda owners, you are getting too much value for your pledge drive contribution. <laughs> You owe us more money. <laughs> okay, contact your local dealer, and uh, and they said they're going to fix it for free. Okay, this is Week in Review on KOW, and there is actually other news of the week to discuss. For more than two months now, uh, people who drive, uh, not Mazdas, but concrete mixing trucks in the Seattle area have been on strike. This is Teamster driver Jerry Pileman saying drivers didn't want to quit working, but when you stop negotiating, that's what happens. We're in a fight for our future. A lot of this has to do with our retiree program uh, for medical and our fair wage increase that keeps us in line with all the other trades and our pension. That audio from uh, Fox 13, by the way. And this might sound like a very localized dispute, except transportationer David Croman. This is a city where people are building a lot of giant projects and fixing large bridges. And right now it is not happening. Thousands of people are out of work. David, there have been concrete strikes before, but why does this one keep going on and on and on and on at such high cost? Well, the yeah, I mean, the cost is is high because we're in, yeah, like you said, we're in Seattle. Seattle is, is building a lot of things, particularly around transportation, um, you know, sound transit, we're in the middle of a many, many billion dollar expansion of our 
link light rail um, system. And as a result of this, um, Sound Transit says it's laid off 300 workers who have not been able to work because they don't have concrete. Um, we are adding a, a rapid ride bus line on Madison Avenue. That is um, slowing as a result of this. The other day, um, this sort of came as a, as a surprise, but the other day, Mayor Bruce Harrell said that the West Seattle Bridge could reopening could be delayed as a result of this. Um, and I, th I think Ouch. I saw that Council Member Herbold said they only need it's something they need some something like 20 more truckloads of concrete to, to finish that. And but they can't get it because they're, you know, you know, everybody's on strike. And so what we saw this week was, was you know, kind of um, a, a step that I haven't seen elected officials take when it comes to, to labor negotiations, which is King County Executive Dow Constantine coming out and basically offering an exclusive contract to any concrete drive, any concrete company that has an existing collective bargaining agreement in place that will last for at least three years. Uh, and so what he's doing here is, you know, because we, we've, we've seen this strike sort of um, play out across a few companies and, and they have mostly stuck together. And so what he seems to be doing here is kind of dangling a carrot for whichever one of these companies is willing to uh, kind of sit back down at the table with its workers and figure this thing out and then can, you know, come forward and claim a $30 million exclusive contract. Um, I don't, so, so the, I don't the know. County, he's not saying the county is not going to give the union drivers the extra money they want. He's saying if you come, no. if you do give union drivers what they want, you come to an agreement, then you'll get an exclusive contract with the county? Yeah, so the, the yeah, the, the contract says, you know, $30 million of concrete work, but the, but the requirement is the company has to have a collective bargaining agreement in place and that has to go out for at least three years. Um, and, and so again, what he's doing here is basically giving these companies incentive to, trying to give companies incentive to come to an agreement with their workers. You know, my colleagues at the Times, uh, Heidi Gruber and Paul Roberts wrote about this. And, you know, there's some question about whether $30 million is actually that much money and actually <laughs> worth it to them. Um, but, you know, I mean, it, this is, um, I think until probably this week, this this story in some ways had been kind of flying under the radar. But it does it does pose some fairly significant um, challenges to what are essentially mega projects. Mm. Okay. Anybody else got? Uh, do, are you all under? I, I get a little woozy in the head when when it comes to um, these contracts and and and, and county contracts. But um, are w w Joanne or Jazz any reaction or questions? Well, just taking a step back, I thought it was really ironic that the New York Times today had a story about Colorado and trying to scale back on all the projects that use concrete, basically <laughs> saying that, you know, maybe we should be second thinking that. And then I was, as I was reading that, I was thinking, yeah, but what about the West Seattle Bridge? And then with this story, I realized, yeah, you know what? Sometimes you do need this stuff. And, uh, you know, you could kind of macro it a little bit more, which is this has been an um, sort of incredible time for labor uh, over the last few, few years. I mean, totally. uh, unions and labor we have seen and, just repeatedly are kind of at their boldest as they've been in decades because there's um, they have more leverage than they've had in, in a really long time. And so, um, you know, from, from kind of, you know, slightly more white collar, um, you know, media jobs, for example, I, um, journalism has seen a huge upswing in unionization, but then, you know, we're also seeing it in, um, you know, manufacturing like, like this or, you know, more blue collar work also. 
you could you could possibly draw a connection, I suppose, to what's happening in Canada all there um, there as well. But I guess in that one, the Teamsters have, have actually distanced themselves from that from that blockade. Um, but you know, it is again on, on a macro level. You're talking about um, the COVID protests in, in yeah, Ottawa right, right. at the border. Um, but on a macro level, yeah, I mean, um, we're just kind of seeing this play out in every industry where workers are kind of realizing how much leverage they have, and um, mm-hmm. oftentimes, you know, succeeding in their efforts. This this one is um, notable for how long it has gone on. Okay, so a lot of people are out of work. Is that I, I'm wondering how temporary or long lasting any of these effects are. People being out of work, um, you know, Sound Transit. We're always hearing how Sound Transit is short on money and costs are ex- escalating, and maybe they won't be able to build that, you know, line after all. You talk about West Seattle Bridge might be delayed. I don't know how long that means. Can you give listeners any sense of, d- besides the dispute that matters a lot to these concrete companies and their Teamster drivers, how much the rest of us are going to be? affected for how long by this massive strike no i don't i don't think i can i mean it's probably too early to say but you know in the world of mega projects every day that goes by that they can't work things get more expensive um so it is you know long term uh probably threatens the the overall cost but i I think it's probably too early to to say exactly um Mm -hmm. so yeah I, i i don't i don't know about that okay anything a listener can do about it (laughs) (laughs) well and you know it's interesting too and i think it's you know it's a um it's an interesting case because uh, as concrete drivers are on strike it affects other construction workers and, and people who work on these projects who are also themselves unionized and so it kind of creates this interesting situation where because, um, you know, the, the labor world really works when the labor world sticks together and they really don't like having unions uh, with competing interests. And so, so far, we have seen the, the labor world mostly stick together on this one. But it is, you have to imagine, it is kind of um, testing that to a certain extent, because as we said, I mean, the, the people who are getting laid off from sound transit projects, um, aren't, aren't, these aren't concrete workers. These are other workers working on other things right. who can't do their jobs because there is no concrete. And so... Um, you know, again, so far there has been mostly um, the, the labor world has been mostly unified around this. But I think part of what Dow Constantine is trying to do is kind of break that up a little bit and be like, one of you, it, one of you can can end this right now by coming forward and and taking this this contract that I'm offering you. Mm-hmm. That's David Croman covering transportation <clears throat> now at the Seattle Times, and we've got Jazz Kymig with us, staff writer at the Stranger. Uh, Joanne Silberner, you've heard her cover health policy on NPR for quite some time. And uh, even before your radio was stuck there, you, you enjoyed Joanne's coverage. Now Joanne's a, a freelance journalist. And we're going to talk, actually, at the, our, our next item here on Week in Review is, um, does touch on health policy. Um, we're going to talk about uh, Oregon and Washington tripping or not and, um, and more uh, we've, and we'll even give you a reason to smile if you stick around to the end of Week in Review. Uh, Mazda drivers, we know you'll be there pulling us through. So just hang tight. And when there's more of Week in Review, which, by the way, you can watch because we're on YouTube and Facebook. Uh, you just search for the live stream. Search KUOW Public Radio and stay tuned. We're figuring out what happened this week and what it means on Week in Review. Bill Radke here, and my 
journalist uh, colleagues and I are figuring out uh, topic by topic um, what went down this week. And we're going to talk psilocybin now, the active ingredient in so-called magic mushrooms. It has shown some promise for treating depression and PTSD. We're still learning about that, as you're about to hear. Our state lawmakers here have been talking about making psilocybin available for that use, for a therapeutic use. But this week, that idea got dropped for now to the disappointment of the co-director of the Psychedelic Medicine Alliance, Tatiana Luz-Quintana. I believe that um, folks should be caring about this because these are alternative medicines that we currently don't have access to that could help a great deal of people, particularly given the mental health um, crisis that this country has right now. Health policy reporter Joanne Silberner, we know our neighbors, Oregon, decriminalized psilocybin mushrooms last year. Why did Washington lawmakers drop the idea this week? I think Boston Jenkins had a really interesting take on that on KUOW the other day where he said that with a bill that's going to make a pretty fundamental change, it usually has to kick around a little while. It mm. usually has to be considered, come back in a different form, have you know sort of more discussion. It needs to sit and steep. And, and he sounded pretty like optimistic. Like tea, for that, example. Say again? It needs to sit and steep like like some kind of mushroom tea. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yes. And you could say that for the data as well. The um, There actually has been, I, I thought that there was some data, but not a lot. But I just came across something in Scientific American where they said psilocybin has been tried on more people in clinical trials than some of the antidepressants that have been approved, you know, were approved by the FDA many years ago. Really? Uh, I didn't realize that the numbers were that great in terms of how many people have tried it. So huh. it's, it, it's, there's there's a fair amount of data. Uh, the side effects are low. Uh, I, there there were questions about the particulars of the bill. It, it put a lot on the Department of Health in terms of uh, determining how it was going to be used. And and as I think the Seattle Times pointed out, they're kind of busy these days. <laughs> and yeah. it's a lot, you know, to throw in a whole new program might be a lot. Uh, so I, I think, you know, if, if what Austin said the other day was right, it it would probably come up again and it'll probably get through the next time. Yeah, and I think another positive to, you know, what we saw this session was that, you know, more than 300 people, you know, signed up in support to speak in support of the bill. So and from all different types of backgrounds, like doctors, veterans, researchers. Um, so I think it kind of really demonstrated that this is something that Washingtonians are really interested in and have has like a lot of support in the state. And I think also kind of coming off of this pandemic that, you know, did a, a number on all of our mental health, I'm pretty sure. Uh, I think it's really important that, you know, uh, legislators are kind of, you know, support bills like these that kind of let people access, you know, different types of medicine um, to kind of get the, the kind of collective psychic healing that we all need after this time. Mm. And, and the deal is that you would that this would be for adults at a at a registered facility. Right. And there would be someone supervising you. I, re, I can't remember whether this was KOW's own reporting or whether I saw this description in the Seattle Times or where. But but there are trained and licensed. The term was trip sitters. I, I think that was I think that was Rich Smith in the stranger. In the stranger, my sorry, <laughs> sorry, Rich, yeah. trip sitter, like right. So you, these yeah. are someone who who's there with you, and uh, I don't know how much, yeah, how, whether it's active therapy or more like, hey, I'm I'm here, I'm someone you trust, you're everything's okay. Yeah, do you know more about that, Jazz? Uh, I, I don't, but I do know that set and setting is like the most important things when you're doing psychedelic drugs. So, um, yeah. 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. And and so yeah, the DOH, the the Department of Health has has a lot going on, and this is this is uh, as we say a short session. This is not a this is not a usual long legislative session where you expect everything to get dealt with. But uh, David, do you know whether this support that we were just talking about this public support, and I don't have numbers behind that, whatever public support there is for the therapeutic use of psilocybin, do we know whether that is a Democrat thing versus a Republican thing, or whether it's across the board? I would say in the public and in the legislature? Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, um, I, I my only sort of point of reference is thinking back to the initiative, uh, I guess, in 2012 that legalized marijuana in the state. Um, it was it was you know Barack Obama's re-election year, and we saw divides, you know, sort of as you'd expect across the state, except for the marijuana one. It was pretty much passing by the same margins across the whole state. Um, so you know, I mean, I think there's some indication that um, it feels a little bit to me like the same kind of march that we saw with marijuana, which is kind of you know dipping a toe in and raising the idea. But even in the last year or two, it really has. Um, I would say the discussion around psilocybin and psychedelics has increased quite a bit. Seattle kind of had its own whole kind of separate conversation. Um, you know, it's already, we talk about decriminalizing, but at least in Seattle, there hasn't been a, you know, no, nobody's, nobody's getting arrested or penalized for anything related to mushrooms these days. So it's for all intents and purposes kind of already decriminalized in, in the city. So, you know, I wouldn't, I, I don't, I don't know enough enough about, the partisanship around this, but it does kind of have that same feel that marijuana had, which is, um, you know, kind of a little shocking at first, but then with each month and year, it starts to kind of ingratiate itself a little bit more into the mainstream conversation. I mean, it is yeah. a bit of a libertarian approach of, you know, why, you know, why should we prevent people from doing this? It's not like, you know, with some of the other drugs where there were criminal conspiracies behind it. I don't think there's any criminal conspiracy associated with psilocybin. So from that deregulating point of view, you could see that there might be a push from that, that side of the political spectrum. Uh, on the other hand, though, there, there will be a fair amount. It'll be interesting to see how much regulation comes through with whatever gets passed. Yeah. And I believe from Rich's reporting, he mentioned one Republican state legislator that mentioned that she had heard someone had had a bad trip one time. Um, but I, I think broadly, uh, you know, Senator Jesse Solomon, who pushed this, um, said that it had, you know, bipartisan support or bipartisan interest. But it was, again, that kind of uh, stricture of the shortened session this year um, and, you know, trying to build a regulatory system from the ground up, just not really being a priority for a lot of people right now. And Joanne, my in my head, I sometimes conflate what I've heard about microdosing of of LSD. Uh, I've, there's that going on, and then there's psilocybin mushrooms. Is it that exact? Would would this would this bill have had the Department of Health, you know, figuring out um, uh, certain doses? And do we know enough to do that? Uh, I think en enough is almost known. And you know, there's so, there are a lot of clinical trials going on. And there are uh, there's a fair amount of information on this clinically, so that would uh, that would be known. I'm not sure how much how prescriptive DOH would have, would have been under this bill. I'm yeah. not sure. Yeah. Okay. And, what, and one last thing: what about the FDA? Is the FDA are, are they going to? I mean, are they going to improve marijuana use? Are they going to approve psilocybin use? 
Well, they have listed psilocybin. They have a category of approval called breakthrough, breakthrough drugs. These are drugs that they think are needed and they want to help the company, a, a company that signs up for breakthrough drug application, gets a lot of assistance from the FDA in preparing the application. What do you need to have? You know, what kind of numbers do you need? The FDA works hand in hand with them and they've assigned breakthrough status to psilocybin. So I think if they get a credible application, it, it could happen and it could happen fast. Hmm. My understanding, My understanding is at least with, um like some migraine medicines share a kind of component of psilocybin that some of the, some of the, I'm not, a, I did very badly in chemistry in high school, but uh, <laughs> some of the sort of base components behind some migraine medicines sort of share DNA or whatever, whatever it is with, with psilocybin. So, you know, mm. we, it is a, it is a, a component that has been uh, looked at and uh, sort of folded into some mainstream medicine practices. Okay. Uh, so we were just talking about the psilocybin, regulation and trip sitting idea being not not getting through the legislature this time around let's touch on something that's still alive in the legislature and almost 17 billion 17 billion dollar transportation package backed by the democrats david we know that transportation money is for highway projects and <clears throat> transit and stuff is this is this your typical uh transpo package or is there something especially surprising or intriguing being discussed here yeah, I mean, so this would be the fourth in the last 20 years, but the other three were, were based mostly off of increases to the gas tax and also done kind of bipartisan, in a bipartisan way. Mm. This one is, at least so far, has been almost exclusively a Democratic-led proposal, doesn't include an increase to the gas tax. And, you know, I think past transportation packages have, have really focused um, mostly on, on big highway projects. This one has, a this one still does that, but also has a much bigger focus on transit. Um, Is that why it's gotten more partisan? Because, you know, Republicans it, want want projects, highway projects, but now it's 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 getting more uh, more partisan than that. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, I, the Democrats, um, you know, the Republicans are saying that the Democrats didn't really even reach out to them on this one, and and the Democrats don't actually really deny that that's true. Um, I, I think I think it is because they had some specific goals in mind. Um, they decided, uh, and they decided they wanted to prioritize more transit, um, increase its its role. And, uh, you know, I think another big part of this is a lot of the funding of this comes from this new kind of cap and trade carbon system that is coming online in Washington state. And Republicans opposed that last, it passed last session and Republicans opposed it. The, the heads of the democratic leadership basically said, well, you guys opposed what is basically a third of the funding for this thing in the first place. So you know, we don't feel like we can negotiate with you on this. Um, but, you know, I mean, it would have a it would have a pretty massive impact. We're talking, like you said, almost 17 billion dollars. It would make uh, public transit ridership free for anybody 18 or under. Um, yeah. It would see fairly dramatic uh, spending on on transit at the local level and um, new ferries and a lot for salmon. And then also hybrid you know, electric ferries, hybrid electric ferries. Yeah. yeah. So. Um, yeah, it's a big it's a big proposal. It, it certainly is unfolding differently than past proposals have. But even Republicans are sort of acknowledging, well, I mean, the Democrats have the votes for this. So if they want to pass it, they probably can. And um, I have not heard of any Democrats so far who have who, who do not want to vote for that. Um, so I, I would be surprised at this point if it doesn't get a fairly swift um, kind of hit the fast lane to stretch the metaphor a little bit uh, to the governor's <laughs> desk. 
Uh, I did. I did have a question. I noticed that in one of your in your reporting that you mentioned that uh, fifty million dollars will be going towards communities affected by highway construction. Do you have any idea of what that would look like or who that would go to? Yeah. So that that's. I mean, that's this kind of larger conversation that's happening around highways. Uh, yeah. In, and their how they contribute to climate change, and then their 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 history with you know destroying a lot of uh, low income. Uh, communities and communities of color. And so this would, uh, yeah, this, I think it would be a grant-based system. So um, kind of the exact projects that this would fund, unclear, but, you know, you could see it going to neighborhoods like South Park, for example, Mm -hmm. or maybe even Chinatown International District, um, some places, you know, Yakima, I mean, communities that have um, these kind of fairly large highways going right through them, a lot of South King County. uh, And, you know exactly kind of what that would fund i think is unclear right now um i don't think 50 million dollars is enough to say you know lid i5 as right yeah. but it is it is enough that maybe you they you know do more mitigation plant trees along the highway that sort of thing um and in some ways it's kind of more of a you know symbolic gesture i mean 50 million dollars is not symbolic but it is sort of indicative of like a first step in sort of acknowledging the larger role that highways have played in community development and trying to kind of fix some of the impacts of that. Okay, and did I hear you say that Democrats are getting this transportation package through without much or any Republican support and that that might be possible now but not later? Is is the, do, do Democrats think that their majority, their ability to do things like this is going to disappear? I don't know about disappear, but I mean, certainly when you, I, I think, you know, they, they took the gas tax, a gas tax off the table really early, um, which was not a, which was not unanimously agreed upon among the Democrats. But I, I do think when you talk to people, it was almost exclusively because this is an election year and all signs point to a fairly bad one for Democrats. Mm. Um, and so there's sort of two things happening here. One, they're kind of trying to show that they can, you know, pass big things and fix your pet projects. But then also, I do think that there's some sense that this might not be as easy to do uh, for the Democrats if they want to do it in the way that they want in the future. If they lose seats, um, I, I, you know, I don't I, you'd have to check in with my political colleagues to know exactly kind of what the odds are of the Senate or the House flipping. But, um, you know, you mentioned this is a short, short session. The other packages had not been done in short sessions. They had been done in long sessions. So mm-hmm. even the fact that it's an even year and they were racing this thing through is notable. And I think um there are lots of reasons for that. Chief among them is they have a lot of federal money coming in and um, it's a good time to spend it. But then also I do think that the fact that it's an election year and they might not have quite the grip on power that they have now in the future is certainly is a motivator. Okay. All right. We'll see if that transportation package is, uh, is, is on a high speed rail or if it's, if it's going to be uh, to get stuck in sticky concrete, doesn't sound like it. Democrats have the votes for now. So let's move. We've got uh, four minutes left in the show. I always like to, to, to leave listeners with a reason to smile or be hopeful. And uh, I noticed that Oscar nominations came out this week and that one of the Best Picture nominees is set in West Seattle. It's called West Side Story. I assume it's about two lovers in West Seattle. One runs a concrete company and the other is a teamster. And their gangs are feuding. And caught in the middle are the people of West Seattle who just want their bridge to reopen. As the movie begins, we meet a starry-eyed West Seattleite who's sure that any day there'll be some way to get home. A bridge, a light rail line, something. Could it be? Yes, it could. 
Something's coming, something good If I can wait Something's coming, I don't know what it is But it is gonna be we don't know what it is either or when. Meanwhile, the former mayor, Greg Nichols, is from West Seattle. Here, he and Jenny Durkin sing a tender ballad about leaving office. Such a poignant scene. While on the street below, there's a protest at the West Seattle precinct. That's West Side Story, the odds-on favorite for Best Picture. It's either that or another Seattle-based film, Power of the Dog Park. So watch the Academy Awards March 27th. Anything making you smile or feel hopeful this week? Um, I, I was telling you guys before we came on, I've been really obsessed with Jackass recently, and mm-hmm. they recently uh, came up with a new film, I think last week, called Jackass Forever, and it's I never was I was never allowed to watch it when I was younger because my mom didn't want me and my brother like redoing any of those like crazy stunts that those guys do. These but are du- This is they, dudes hitting each other and dudes doing, as you say, dangerous stunts. Yeah, very lewd things. Yeah. Um, and I don't know. I find it so funny as an adult now. I, I can't stop <laughs> watching them. It's kind of like a you know, the grandfather to like Vine or TikTok, you know, where it's what you can, what you can do to get people to continue to look at you. And they really (laughs) care about one another. And I I don't know, I love this 2000s nostalgia era that we're coming into. And I'm just kind of trying to reap as much as I can from it. So that's, what's making me smile is people hurting themselves. (laughs) (laughs) That's beautiful. That's a bumper sticker right there. Anything, (laughs) Anything else to smile about Joanne, David? Longer days. Yeah. Whoa, false spring. I'm all for it. Yeah, bring on the fake spring. True. David, anything more? I'm just trying to think of what the like West Seattle version of the Jets and the Sharks would be. Oh, yeah. I could have extended that even further. (laughs) No, but I agree. The sun is, even if it's limited, is great. I'm basking in it as we speak. Yeah. How about the the uh, the Bengals are in the Super Bowl. The Bang- the Cincinnati Bengals are Ohio's Mariners. They have not won a playoff game in 31 years. It's their first Super Bowl in 33 years. So I'm kind of sentimental uh, about that. The Mariners have never been to the Super Bowl, by the way, and, uh, and maybe never will. Um, so uh, that's coming up this weekend. Hey, it's been a pleasure. It's always a pleasure to uh, to figure out the week together. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for coming on this week. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Great to be here. We've been talking to The Strangers staff writer Jazz Kaimig, freelance journalist Joanne Silberner, Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman. That's The Week Gone By. The show's produced by Kevin Kniestead with social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza and Tio Popescu. I appreciate, appreciate you listening. Bill Radke here and Mazda drivers enjoy thoughtful, informative news coverage every minute of every day for the rest of your life. Talk to you next week.